This episode is sponsored by Zoe Digital Japan. Get more visitors to your website and convert them into paying customers. Zoe Digital helps foreign companies expand in Japan with digital marketing services. Look for the elephant logo at zoedigital.jp. Greetings, everyone. This episode, I share a couple of beers with marketing consultant and founder of Concept Design, Mr. Ed Thompson. Ed has been involved with marketing, branding, advertising, and consumer behavior for over 20 years in Japan. Many also know Ed through academia, where he has been a lecturer at Temple University for over 15 years. We talk about starting his own business after only five years in Japan, why he's so passionate about marketing, an interesting theory on why Japanese corporate logos are usually words rather than pictograms, personal branding, and why finding your voice is crucial. Finally, Ed gets philosophical when we discuss wabi-sabi and kintsugi and how this correlates to gaman and the Japanese human spirit. Yes, Ed goes deep on a couple of topics, so sit back and enjoy the ride. Direct from Tokyo, this is Now in Zen with Ed Thompson. There's no direct Japanese translation for marketing. Why is marketing so often overlooked in Japanese companies? It's not so much that it is overlooked as it's embedded in other functions. My exposure to the concept of marketing actually came from the word kikaku eigyo. Kikaku eigyo is basically planning and sales. Most companies do have a planning or planned sales department. Intrinsically, part of that sales function, it would be different types of aspects of marketing. Direct marketing, personal selling, etc. The emphasis on personal relationships. The messaging that would come out of that, of course, that was segmented into something advertising. That's an excellent translation for marketing because I've had a few marketing guys mm. on this podcast and I've asked them that exact same question. Mm. They all had different answers, which were logically sound. Mm. Kikaku is planning. Eigyo could be broad. PR, marketing in a way, is indirect selling, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Kikaku Eigyo. You gave a really good answer. Never heard that before. Yeah, I would also say there was the transition to actually name marketing as marketing within the last 10, 15 years in Japanese companies. But before that, you would definitely have this separation behind, behind say, the kikakushitsu. The planning department was attached to the president's office, the shachoshitsu. When you would have the kikakushitsu coming from the president's office, they would set the overarching business slash marketing strategy. But it's a business strategy in the Japanese context because, of course, everything is business. Right. And marketing just happens to be one of the subcategories or toolkits that you would use to do something. That makes sense. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, Ed. Nice to meet you. Very good to be here. You are a marketing consultant and the founder of Concept Design. Design. And how long have you been doing that? I've been running my own agency and consultancy here in Japan for about 20 years. I came originally in 1993 as an exchange student. I was at an international martial arts university in Chiba. What kind of martial arts were you studying? I wasn't really studying martial arts so much as having martial arts done to me. 
I was in the kendo division. It was my first time taking kendo. All the other students, they've been taking kendo since they were six years of age. Every day was me getting beat up with bamboo sticks. Okay, why subject yourself to that? <laughs> well, it was an exchange program, and so I was coming from the University of Texas. This program in Chiba, which was admittedly the middle of nowhere, you were there for 10 months. And I figured that would be immersive. But I figured I would take the rarest thing that I could, and that happened to be kendo. Did you ever take up any martial arts? Actually, no. Concept design, you started 20 years ago. Yes, I started independently about 20 years ago. The backstory to that, I first came to Japan as an exchange student, but then afterwards I was on the JET program. I did the JET program for about three years. I was a city hall coordinator for international relations. Working with bureaucrats, that's the great foundation in getting into Japanese society, yes. <laughs> However, it's very vague. You learn some of the cultural aspects of it, and I happen to be in Chiba City. And what you're talking about is really very valid in terms of getting cultural awareness or situational awareness as to how things are done, but it's still not something that's in a textbook, so it's really right. hard to understand how to apply that elsewhere. It's kind of like osmosis. You just, mm. You're living it, breathing it every day. Oh, that's totally true. So you've been in Japan 25 years? More or less. I might be missing a few years. Okay. Some of those years are cloudy for me too, so <laughs> understandable. <we> you started <laughs> your own business 20 years ago. Yes. I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Mm. Some would say, you've been in Japan five years, you're just starting to learn Japanese, don't have a lot of experience in Japanese business. What gives you the confidence and experience to open your own marketing consulting company after only five years in Japan? Well, I would say that the art towards that is working for, as a print coordinator and handling a lot of the materials for larger Japanese manufacturers who are targeting overseas markets. So we're pushing that out to, say, international markets. And so you can think of that as a process of localization. After working as a, in the world of print, the Internet was just starting to become very, very big in 1999 to, say, uh, 2001 in Japan. I worked within a very quickly developing digital agency and they needed somebody with my background because you had very creative people but they were not organized. Being a coordinator was that you would have to organize so many random things, variables, to keep the project going. Eventually I discovered that there was a fancy name for that and it commanded top dollar. Project management. <laughs> right. And so I became a project manager, directing the things in the company, how the process would work from our front office, the back office, the middle office, and uh, keeping things moving as a quickly developing agency. It's a great story. It's all about your self-perception, what you want to do. You can say, I'm a marketing consultant. Hmm. Even though maybe just doing this localization, that is marketing, but it hmm. sounds so much bigger. Mm. Right? I'm a marketing consultant versus localization. It's all about your self-worth. Well, that is a really important point that you make because words matter. Before I took the title of marketing consultant, 
I had an option of quite a few different titles. I could have chose coordinator. I could have chosen producer, strategist. But some of them don't have the right nuance. Some of them imply something different. And of course, it depends on who you're talking to. A lot of the people that I work with are other agencies, but also business people. A business person will not entrust their marketing to a translator. They might trust some aspects of cultural insights to, say, a translator or a localizer. But even not all translators are geared for that. They do not necessarily consult on that. They cannot necessarily speak to why some of the decisions they have made in a translation yeah. have been made. Ed, that's an excellent point. Mm. Every time you're in Japan and you meet somebody new, you exchange business cards. Mm. There's that ritual. Look at each other's titles, figure out what your status is in relation to their title and your title. And if your business card says marketing consultant, it doesn't matter what you're doing, localizing or translating or coordinating or strategizing or whatever, you are a marketing consultant in their eyes. The perception of everybody that you give that business card to is going to be completely different. So that was a super smart move, I think. Yeah, and uh, that's totally true. It's not just the card, though. Separate from the card, in most human relationships, people will believe the first thing that you tell them. You can prove it after the fact, but they will. most people will casually accept what you tell them because that's just how social interaction usually works. He said he's an astronaut. I don't know what he's doing in Rapongi at 3 o'clock in the morning, but okay. That's, he's that's spaced fine. out, that's for sure. <laughs> well, exactly. But most people will believe your story intrinsically unless you give them a reason to not believe it. Now, here's the interesting thing about belief and doubt. Belief is really easy to gain. But once people get that seed of doubt in their mind, it never goes away. And this yep. becomes one of the key things as people try and go out in the world and become authentic. How does that work? If you're trying to let them know that you're a marketing coordinator or an astronaut, how do you give them a reason to not believe you? So marketing is about the process of delivering a message to the right audience. <laughs> you might just be out of place. You might just be talking to the wrong people. Or they might check out your marketing consultant website, and if it has crazy photos or some odd language or a subpar layout, then they're going to think, oh, this guy's probably not very good because he's talking about messaging and communication, yet his website is terrible at messaging and terrible at communication. You, you are bringing up a pain point that is actually very relatable for most advertising and marketing agencies out there. Yeah. It gets back to that phrase that the cobbler's kids have no shoes because you are a specialist in the market, etc. Yeah. It does not necessarily mean that your website and yeah. branding is up to date. Yeah. It took me 10 years to update my website. My previous really? website. Yes, it did. Why we so long? Another thing about marketing that is really important is that you will consistently have to remake yourself every two to three years. 
sometimes the, the tools in your toolkit do not get updated at the same time. Why every two, three years? The marketplace changes, technology changes, your clients change. And especially with digital transformation, everything's changing in that regards. Two, three years might even be too slow. Oh, yes. You will not usually hear this, but it's actually part of the reality of working in advertising. Usually you want to be very close to the bleeding edge of innovation. The reason why is very simple. That is where the largest margins are. Who wouldn't like large margins? Well, there's a risk. You can bet the wrong way. If you wind up getting a team full of engineers and programmers who, say, specialize in Java, but then the world has uh, pivoted to Python or Ruby, then you can be left out. You can have very nice systems that no longer work with what most people need. So looking at your website, Concept Design, you have an impressive list of corporate clients. Adidas, Espresso, Heineken, there were about 32 recognizable logos, but just a few Japanese logos. Why not more? You're based in Japan. This is a really interesting question. The world of marketing is very broad. The space that I am in is very niche. One of the areas that I specialize in is localizations. As I mentioned before, the reverse localization of print material going abroad, but also foreign companies coming into Japan. I think that there is a connected reason for why I do not have so many Japanese domestic clients. It's also the same reason why you don't see many small, mid-sized, or even large-sized businesses abroad and so here in Japan, the types of companies that use my services and my insights are very few and far between. There are larger companies. In many ways, they will have in-house teams that handle certain things. Some of these in-house teams will also work with partners here in Japan. However, their partners here in Japan are very decided. They're already decided they have had relationships for 10, 20, 30, 50 years. Typically, Japanese companies like to keep everything in-house. Yes, that is definitely one thing to say. However, related back to one of the topics, Kikaku, Eigyo, once the business strategy is developed and the company has its own salespeople, advertising can be outsourced. Japanese companies usually do not have internal creative departments that will be outsourced to agencies as opposed to what you will see in a lot of multinationals that will have their own creative right. uh, departments that handle certain types of things and they will outsource certain types of production yeah. to larger agencies and so this is a fundamental difference and but this is also not dictated but it has helped determine what my focus is in the market. Do you ever work with Japanese large advertising agencies? Yes. Those larger Japanese advertising agencies, I will work with them on the larger foreign accounts that wind up being developed here in Japan because there is a lot of trans-localization and trans-creation that has to happen in situation. You are being a cultural interpreter 
at the same time that you are producing these campaigns that are being localized for the Japanese market. So of these 32 logos that I see on your website, all very impressive by the way, do you work directly with them or you work with them through agencies? Uh, so I'd probably say half and half, but it totally okay. depends on context yeah. because those agency relationships are very fluid. Some people might use the word fickle. And so they can change. And one moment that I have pitched on larger accounts, lost those pitches, and still had the work come to me through a Japanese agency. Ah, okay. Makes sense. Well, speaking of logos, and I always have wanted to ask a marketing guy this question. Have you ever seen that infographic which compares major brand logos from the U.S. and Japan? In the U.S., most large company logos are single images, no words to represent the brand. For example, the Nike swoosh, McDonald's golden arches, Starbucks mermaid, Apple's apple. You see all four of those logos, you could go on and on and on. Microsoft, even Boeing. Uh, all of these logos have no words in them. They're just images. In Japan, on the other hand, I would challenge you to come up with one logo, corporate logo, that doesn't have any words in it. Canon, Nintendo, Sony, Muji. They're all words. They're not individual images. So it's very interesting when you see them side by side. You can take 20 major American brands on the right, and they're all logos, no words, and then the Japanese ones are all words. Why is that? Because the Japanese logos are pictographs. They are not understood as English words. I would argue this. this, this Okay, this is a hill I'm going to die on. I've just thought of this, but this is a hill I'm going to die on. Go for it. The Japanese, the English language logos come from the original Japanese kanji because the kanji characters are the logos of most Japanese companies. Toshiba, Honda, etc. That's where it starts. They needed something for overseas, and so they chose, of course, the English spelling of the original kanji name, the Romaji. But from the Japanese perspective, that's a pictograph. And so we read it, but they see it as a whole. I don't think that anybody has studied this, but I think the cultural aspects come from that, the transition from... Japanese kanji characters to an English medium, they have logified it. Once it's a logo from their perspective, it's a pictograph. I see. And I also think it's about convenience. Kanji characters are very compact, and so they are very versatile in their usage. A logo in the Western context becomes the compact representation of sometimes longer words. But it's branding. So when you see the Pepsi logo that doesn't say Pepsi, you know that it's Pepsi. That imagery that is quick and easy to understand, I think that is why a lot of iconography is prevalent in the West, because it serves a very utilitarian function. For Japanese companies, there is no need to create that because your name in kanji 
represents and delivers a solid enough message. And also there's more historical context to the brand. Probably most older Japanese companies, etc., they don't just have their name. They also have a moon. Moon is like a, a symbol. It's a crest. Crest. Uh, Mitsukoshi, Takashimiya, etc. You will have a very distinct crest. Those elements exist here in Japan, and you will find them used in supporting ways. Whereas in the West, you will have the name, but that visualization is much more easy to apply in multiple situations. You are also into academia. You teach at NYU, Nikkei Business School, Temple University, your whole career. You are living and breathing marketing. Why the passion for marketing? Marketing as a discipline is something that helps me to make order out of chaos. The first job that I had after JET was in advertising. I was a print coordinator. And as a print coordinator, you have to deal with a lot of different teams, the client, but also your internal teams, the designers, the sales team, etc. And one of the things that you will learn is how to get things done with no authority. Because a coordinator is the lowest in rank on these projects, but they hold all the pieces to get things done, and they have to pass along information at the right time. Order out of chaos. What's the chaos? The chaos is life and the people that are in it. Japanese speakers know that ZO means elephant in Japanese. ZO Digital Japan is an SEO and digital marketing agency based in Tokyo. Contact them to help your business grow traffic by four times, seven times, and even ten times in one year with services such as SEO, content marketing, pay-per-click advertising, and more. Head to the website zodigital.jp and look for the elephant logo. Let's talk a little bit about personal branding. Is that something that you... Personal cons- branding is very close to my heart. Okay. So this is not just for celebrities or entrepreneurs that are offering their services to the world, is it? It is not. One of the, how do you say, the pop image of personal branding is what you might see on Instagram or Facebook in terms of influencers. So in the context of personal branding, one of the things that I like to tell people, whatever your brand is, you will need to develop a voice. Many people have issues with that. Well, I talk how I talk. Yes, you but do. But voice, voice doesn't mean the tone of voice. Voice means the message. It's the character. And so the character is what people will perceive without knowing anything about you. So one of the shortest forms of advice I try to give people, and this goes for individuals but also executives that I coach sometimes, is that you should speak in private as if you were talking in public. Once you understand what constraints apply in that context, congratulations. That is what I mean by voice. Got it. Personal branding, what are some of the tools or techniques to showcase your personal branding? So the tools to showcase, I'll I'll talk about the theory first and then the tools. Okay. And slightly separate, but the main thing about branding, branding starts with positioning. Just imagine an XY axis 
where do you want to be on this XY axis? And most people would have a hard time telling you. The easiest thing to look at is who do you consider your competition? And a lot of people would say, well, I don't really have competition. I just do what I do. But that is also not true because if you are human, you have somebody that you like. You also have somebody that you hate. And you probably hate them because they're better than you. You need to be honest with yourself and find out who that is. It is a visceral thing. It doesn't mean that you actually hate them. It just means that you find that something that they do rubs you wrong and it is usually in the context of them being better than you. That is something that you can take to heart and you can use for your positioning because the interesting thing about positioning is once you get past that initial visceral reaction, there's quite a bit that you can learn because you probably don't want to do everything that that person or that company is doing. That helps you determine your positioning. You cannot be everything to everyone. My company, we do quite a bit of social media on behalf of our clients. We do very little on behalf of ourselves. Oh, why is that? <laughs> Time constraints. But doesn't that go back to if giving a customer a reason to doubt you? If you have a very robust and excellent social media presence, wouldn't it be easier to say to a client, we can do for you what we do for ourselves? You're walking the walk and you're talking the talk. We can do for you what we've done for our other clients is sometimes a shorter path. And for a lot of agencies, especially when you really, really dig into it, most yeah. agencies will only renew their websites, a full renewal, every three to five years. You can have a phenomenal uh, social media presence, but unless it's geared a certain way, that will not necessarily translate into the awareness or attention you're trying to get from potential clients. Okay, I still have a bit of a disagreement with you on this, and this is the analogy that I'm using. I recently had a suit made. There's this tailor who was recommended to me by a customer of mine, and I went to his studio. This guy was impeccably dressed. <laughs> all fit and it all looked great now he's a tailor and he's making a suit for me and he looks impeccable now if this guy had been in sweats i would have thought hmm i'm wondering if this was the right decision or not and it's great in your business to say look at what we did for heineken adidas Nespresso. And that carries a lot of weight in Japan because a lot of Japanese companies like to see the track record. They don't want to be the pioneers. They don't want to be your first customer. They want to have that anshin uh, kan, that feeling of assurance or safety that you are a legit precedence. But part of that also is your own website or your own social media presence. Is it not? Am I wrong? Really, it's a question of proving. Can you do it? Not having done it for yourself is not usually taken away. But the other thing that you're talking Fair about enough. is that personally, when you are there for um, to get a suit made, 
and that personal level of experience, this gets back into, say, the consumer behavior. In Japan, one of the things about consumer behavior, Japanese people are incredibly picky. This is, and it, it's kind of a chicken in the egg argument, is Japanese omote nashi, was it developed just as a social norm? Or was it developed as a way to make these incredibly picky customers more receptive to your brand? Detail-oriented. Very detail-oriented. And this is why every summer, if you go to a convenience store and you find a drink, a, a rare soft drink, which you like, it could be mineral water, it could be whatever, and you're like, wow, that's great. And you go back two weeks later, and it's not there. Because Japanese consumers have decided you know, through their buying power that we don't like it. And the manufacturer's like, okay, next. Yeah. But you have this very interesting dynamic of who is actually leading the development, the consumers or the manufacturers. I've read some of your posts on LinkedIn mm. where you talk about brand identity mm. and the impact of brands on consumer behavior. And this is where I'm really interested. Do you consult on these principles and theory the area of consumer behavior is definitely something that always comes up in most of the projects that i'm involved with one of the subsets of what i do i do campaigning campaigning is about brand activation brand activation meaning means that you are boosting the interaction that you have with consumers at some point in their customer journey it is incredibly hard to be everywhere for, with a consumer. The market research that goes behind building these consumer profiles or personas, this is something, when a client has the budget, we definitely, I like to front load projects with that research. However, there are many types of projects where the client is constrained, the budget is constrained. What they are looking for is a push of awareness or sales. In other words, they're looking for pop. And so it's not really a brand activation in that sense. It's really about awareness, capturing some way to stay in touch with more people than you were connected with last time. And what are some of the tools, some of the techniques to do that? One of the best techniques is email, old-fashioned email. Once you have someone's email, you can probably stay in touch with them for the rest of their life or their digital life. So you're talking about CRM? Uh, CRM is a fancy way of saying email, but yes. And so on the high end, CRM, and there are different platforms that allow you to take care of this, but the main thing you need, the goldmine, is each individual email and the flat data file that has them. If you choose the wrong CRM platform, three years down the line, five years down the line, that company may be bought, that company may go bankrupt, right. etc., and you are left with nothing. I had this happen to me. You will be teaching a course this spring at Temple University titled Contemporary Advertising. Mm. Sounds interesting. <laughs> so without giving me the whole syllabus, what is contemporary advertising and what can I expect to be more savvy at when I complete your course, Sensei? <laughs> 
So contemporary advertising will focus on the basics of advertising communications in a variety of channels. These channels include branding, marketing, public relations, direct selling, sponsorships, etc. But I also teach a course on branding. And in my branding course, people usually think as branding something that you do. But I would say branding is something that is decided. We want to be seen like this. We want to be seen in this way. And there are many different ways that you can be seen. There is an overarching, say, archetype, which is also very much related to what a brand is. When we're talking about logo types, etc., it's very much related to that. But once you have decided what your brand is, you must communicate about it in certain ways. And so contemporary advertising tries to take into account how different channels are being used nowadays to promote brands. And this could include Google advertising, which is really direct pitches in a digital form. Very direct pitches, very direct sales to consumers in a digital form. Google has replaced the middleman and the de- as the delivery channel. Most students have Instagram. Many are not on TikTok. TikTok is the most contemporary thing in advertising right now. It is a very unique delivery system. It is a very unique way of communicating. And so brands also have to develop their language in a certain way that matches platforms like that. So that's bleeding edge. But for most people, learning about Instagram and Facebook will be contemporary enough. Many companies still to this day do not have a very valid Facebook presence, Instagram presence, or Twitter presence. And not all of these channels will be valid for you. I want to stress that email is very contemporary. Print media is still a very viable option in Japan. The topic of print media be part of this contemporary advertising course? As a tool, it will be one of the things that we discuss. Cool. And that'll be at Temple University this spring. If somebody's interested in it, where can they learn more? You can learn more by going to the Temple University website. They have full information on the courses. And it's not just the contemporary advertising course. These are all part of a certificate program for different disciplines. There is a business and management certificate, a marketing certificate, and there are groups of classes that are available for students to take to help them improve their overall acumen and prowess here in the Japanese market. This is for adults mid-career people. This is for professionals, right? Yes, it's for working professionals. And so I've been teaching at Temple University for more than 15 years now. And in combination with Temple University and other universities around town, I've probably taught more than 1,000 working professionals on a variety of subjects. What I try and emphasize in all my classes is making sure that they can walk out of each session with tools and worksheets and concepts that we have to use with global managers who are extremely demanding. You know, I ask everybody on this podcast what their favorite untranslatable Japanese word is. Ed, what's yours? So I would say that probably wabi-sabi. Wabi-sabi, a classic. Wabi-sabi is one of those, what, what, what's the common term? Inscrutable. <laughs> 
it is an indecipherable type of word. Trying to explain it is um, is really difficult. But the closest explanation, I guess, would be it is a type of cultural perfection. It is something that is so attuned to the aesthetics of that moment because it involves a concept of beauty. Like a lot of things in Japanese art, the aesthetics and the concept of beauty, it is a way of being, but it does not imply perfection. In the West, perfection is a definitive concept. I've always heard wabi-sabi translated as the beauty of imperfection. Is that what you're trying to say? I So the beauty of imperfection is one way of saying it. I think a similar concept in the West. Oh yeah, he made the three-pointer, but it was ugly. Do you know the concept of kintsugi? Yes, the okay. broken objects. Right. Usually it, a bowl or a plate or some type of ceramics or porcelain, maybe it's a family heirloom, but it breaks. Most people would throw that away. Kintsugi is the process of where they put the pieces back together, they fuse or they attach the broken pieces together with gold. And the result is that plate or that bowl or that teacup which is now whole again, but it has gold in the areas connecting the broken pieces. It's now usable again, but it's not in its original form. And that's often referred to as an example of wabi-sabi. Do you agree? So, Andrew, are we really going to do this? Because I'm about to go there. Go there! <laughs> this is a really interesting concept that you talk about. Something that was whole, that was broken, that was put together. I would argue that that is very much related to the Japanese concept of gaman. Gaman. Gaman is perseverance. It's particularly for us as outsiders looking in to different aspects of Japanese society. There are organizations, the people in those organizations that are sometimes frequently broken. And the whole concept of gaman is to put yourself back together in this from this crucible of fire and to actually redo this as many times as possible. And so the kintsugi, which you were talking about, becomes the glue for the fractures of these people who go through incredible physical and psychological stressors. So wabi-sabi, yes, those who come through this process and are remade or reborn are held in very high esteem. Conversely, really? we probably, yes, because that's the standard. You did not break under stress. It's... The, that's the English translation of this. But if you fail at something in no. Japan, you're often ostracized for that failure. But this is what gaman is about. You did not fail. You gaman, you persevere through it. It's unsaid, like lots of things. Of course people know that you probably broke during this process. But you are still here. And being present is more important in Japan than being whole. Dude, you did go there. That's very deep. <laughs> the whole concept of, uh, it's not just inanimate objects, 
that we are dealing with here, we're dealing with the overall aesthetics. In Japan, that aesthetic is around wa, harmony. Things that are truly broken disturb harmony. And this is what you were talking about, where the failures are taken and moved off and out of sight. The things that could be corrected are corrected with gold, which is not the cheapest of material. And they are held in the highest of regard. It is an art form. Wow. You made me do this. And the beer. Good stuff. Cheers, man. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. Where can people learn more about what you do? People can come to my website, www.conceptdesign.io. On the website, there is different information about my company, the type of work we do. More importantly than that is a marketing academy, which I also have. And this is where, after many years, create a Cliff's Notes version of a lot of the different information in marketing theory, techniques, etc. I've collected over the years for career planning, for marketing strategy, and for management and leadership. The content is free to access. I try and update several times uh, a week or several times a month. And so you can find me at either one of these locations. And of course, also on LinkedIn. Wonderful. Under Ed Thompson. Under Ed Thompson, Tokyo. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ed. Hey, I enjoyed talking with you today. I enjoyed our discussion. Yes. Uh, definitely you are passionate about marketing. I could totally feel that. And we did go a little bit deep on a couple topics, but I appreciate that. So it was great talking with you, and it was great meeting you. So thanks for today. All right. It was definitely great being here, Andrew. Thank you for the invitation. Cheers. Cheers. And that was Ed Thompson, marketing consultant and the founder of Concept Design. A lot of insight, great quotes, and full of passion. You can learn more about Ed's services at conceptdesign.io. Also, check out his classes at Temple University on advertising, branding, and of course, marketing. To listen to more conversations like this, head over to nowandzen.jp. There are over 50 episodes from Japan experts, and you can leave a review, a comment, or send me an email. So until next time, take it easy. Bye, everyone. Thank、you